Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. This week we are bringing you a special episode where we discuss type 1 diabetes and performance. I am joined today by Rebecca Johnson. Rebecca is commonly known as Beck. Beck is the Chief Executive Officer at the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre here in Perth in Western Australia. She's an experienced Chief Executive Officer with a demonstrated history of working in the non-profit organisation management industry. Now, more importantly, what Beck is, is an ultra-endurance athlete. She defies probably a lot of what a lot of people think about type 1 diabetics. She regularly competes in crazy events like swimming to Rottnest Island, some 20 kilometres off the coast of Western Australia, an open water swim. And she's also undertaken some crazy events like a 12-hour continuous mountain bike ride, all whilst managing type 1 diabetes. This is a very interesting personal story that uh, Beck has very kindly shared with us today on Sleep for Performance Radio. Later on this year, we will be looking a little bit more into type 1, type 2 diabetes and other health-related issues. But as a kind of a precursor for that, and for those of you kickstarting off your new year with new goals, maybe this might inspire you to jump up off of that couch, run a 5K, swim a K, do some jumping jacks, whatever it may be. So um, grab your pen, take some notes, and uh, here is Beck Johnson. Five, four, three, two, one. Look at that awkward silence. Got nervous. <laughs> Today, <laughs> we are joined by Beck Johnson on a special episode of Sleep for Performance Radio. Beck, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. So we're sitting here at my kitchen table. Nice sunny day here in Western Australia. Just thought I'd mention that for anybody in Europe who's listening, where it's like two degrees, particularly for those of you in Ireland and England at the moment, where it's pissing rain and freezing. I made my choices, you made yours. That's all I like to say to them. <laughs> Beck, um, today we're going to have a, a discussion around sort of type 1 diabetes, performance, a little bit of nutrition, uh, but really about your personal experience as a type 1 diabetic uh, athlete and how you manage this, and also as a, a career professional as well, uh, which many people out there would be, you know, sort of working in a job during the week, and then going out like people like me and you, being weekend warriors, trying to achieve great things, and, uh, you know, uh, dealing with sort of type 1 diabetes as well. For those people who don't, who don't know you, and there'd be a few that would um, on the podcast, can you give us a quick background about who you are, where you're from, and sort of a general overview? Sure. Um, I... Um, a type 1 diabetic, as you've mentioned, I was diagnosed with diabetes when I turned 17 and, and we can talk about that a, a little later, but um, I think that's really played out in my professional and personal world in a, a lot of very important ways. So um, living with type 1 diabetes and managing the disease uh, has created a really powerful interest in health for me and um, a very powerful sense of purpose in community health. Um, and so as a professional, I'm the CEO of the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre, which is a um, non-profit uh, community health centre that we started up in Stirling in Perth. Um, we have a beautiful facility. Uh, we're supporting uh, over a 1,000 families now and the, the family centre is just growing each week um, as more people are diagnosed and more people are reaching into our service. So uh, that's who I am. I'm a Western Australian girl and, and I'm very proud to, um, to be here talking 
about my um, health journey and have the opportunity to, to do that. Yeah. So what exactly is type 1 diabetes? Because we hear type 1, we hear type 2, we hear pre-diabetic. Mm. How would you describe type 1 diabetes? Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. Um, and what that means is um, people with type 1 are born with a genetic predisposition to develop the disease. And then at some point over their lives, they're exposed to an environmental trigger that kicks off um, those gene signaling um, pathways that cause an autoimmune response. So our most Clever and curious scientists are still, um, I think, stumped is probably the best way to mm. describe it about what that environmental trigger may be. Um, they're looking into exposure to gluten. They're looking at gut health. They're looking at enteroviruses. Um, there are various different research strains into what that trigger may be. But what happens is um, it causes an autoimmune response. So my body, when I turned 17, the, the autoimmune response occurred and um, my immune system suddenly started recognising all the cells in my body um, that create insulin, the beta cells in my pancreas, as bad guys and eliminated them all. And that left me dependent on injected insulin for the rest of my life. Um, so I have had more than 45,000 injections since I was diagnosed. I need seven injections approximately each day to stay alive. Um, I have to check and measure my blood glucose very regularly. Um, I do that with either a blood test eight, nine, ten times a day, or I now have an embedded sensor that I can scan, which has really made pursuits like open water swimming yeah. very accessible to me. Um, and I also must count and measure the grams of carbohydrate, fat and protein in every meal, every snack, every drink, every mouthful of food mm. in order to balance my blood sugar level. Um, that's life with type 1 and as distinct from life with type 2 and, and I guess the causation of type 2, it's, it's important to make out that distinction. Um, type 1 as an autoimmune disease um, cannot be prevented, it can't be cured. Type 2 um, has some genetic factors um, but doesn't have the same autoimmunity um, I guess uh, condition that type 1 has so type 2 is more a disease of insulin resistance rather than total insulin deficiency um, and when you live with type 2 um, it's it's often the causation is around that combination of genetic and lifestyle factors so we're really seeing a rise in type 2 in people in Australia in people who are obese or overweight who are sedentary um, and they're bodies become unable to use the insulin they're producing um, and that really leads to that conclusion that type 2 is preventable and it's also reversible. So that's mm. they're the key points of difference, that prevention and, and prevention and reversal of type 1 versus type 2. So trying to break this down a bit more simply to understand the difference between the two, type 2 diabetics can't use... Where, where's insulin produced? In the pancreas. In the pancreas, right. So... That's produced, so type 2 diabetics can't use that insulin, is that right? They make insulin, absolutely, yeah. um, but their cells have become resistant to the insulin. So they can't basically absorb it, for want of a better word, is that exactly. right? Exactly, okay. yes. Uh, but then type 1 diabetics, they have what, too much, too little as well? They don't make it at all. Don't make it at all. Yeah, so the cells that produce insulin have been destroyed uh. in type 1 diabetes. So that means you are on insulin replacement therapy for the rest of your life. And insulin's got a really important job in the body. It's there to essentially convert carbohydrates and to a certain extent protein into energy for the cells to use. Yeah. So um, what's happening in when you eat carbohydrates and, and protein, you're 
that that breaks down into glucose and that um, glucose is absorbed into the bloodstream and is there for cells to utilize as energy. Yeah. But the insulin is the catalyst between the glucose and the cell to help that cell uh-huh. convert the glucose and utilize it um, to fuel itself. So without insulin, blood sugar levels become completely unregulated. So type one can make it and type two can use it really. Exactly. Would that be a kind of a quick yeah. way to remember it? Yes. Okay. How how did you feel when you first got told you had type one diabetes? What was the what sort of how did that mentally affect you? What did what did you think? How, what were you going through at the time? I think the feeling was relief. Uh, I had been so sick for so many weeks. It, it came on in me um, I, uh, probably over the eight to twelve week period. Um, I started losing a huge amount of weight. Um, I felt so bone weary and fatigued. Um, that you know, there would be days where I'd get up and brush my teeth, and that would be me done for the day. Um, and I was so thirsty, I would get up through the night and drink liters upon liters of water. And there were all these other symptoms that you know, my vision was blurry, and and I just didn't know what was going on. And so when I got a phone call after the GP checked my blood glucose to say you need to be in hospital immediately, I, I think the, the overwhelming feeling was, oh, I've got an answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. How long did you feel like that before you knew? Was it a was it a case of weeks you were feeling bad or months or? I'd say probably about twelve weeks um, was yeah from from the beginning to the point where I was diagnosed um, for the from when I started noticing symptoms. So that diagnosis is was immediately a sense of relief, but after that was totally overwhelming. It mm. turned my whole world upside down. Um, to be taken into hospital and told that you would need to give yourself needles multiple times a day for the rest of your life um, and struggle with the complexity of... I think what's interesting and unique about type 1 diabetes is that in many other diseases or health conditions, a doctor will say, here's a 200-milligram tablet take this three times a day. So the doctor controls the dose and the timing. But in type 1 diabetes, you're given a hormone that will kill you if you get the dose wrong with very little knowledge or understanding at the outset at diagnosis of what is happening. And you're told you need to you need to decide the doses and you need to decide when to take it. And that's that real complexity piece that comes along with type 1 diabetes is that it's on me and I'm in charge and I think that was probably the hardest bit to get my head around in hospital was that I'm going to be released from hospital in two or three days time and and then I I've got to make the calls on this it was terrifying yeah and physically at that age where were you so we speak about kind of what was your mental state of mind but physically were you fit were you healthy were you overweight underweight you know, what was your physical sort of activity level at that age? Uh, I've, I was a very active kid, young person, young adult. So that, that was pretty standard. I think I was probably a moderate level of fitness. Um, I hadn't thought about doing any major endurance challenges or anything like that at this point. Um, but I was regularly pretty active. Um, and I think that was one of the key things around coming into my diagnosis. I was really, I was noticing I couldn't I had no energy to to do anything, and yeah. that was really bothering me. Um, but yeah, I think that was a pretty moderate fitness at that point. You said a few minutes ago that there that 
type one diabetes still kind of bamboozles, you know, or perplexes the researchers today. And you spoke a little bit about environmental factors. Was there any major environmental factors that were taking place? I'd imagine around 17, end of school, potentially start university, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend troubles, whatever was going on. Like around that age can be quite daunting for anybody, regardless of even having type one diabetes. It's quite a kind of a strange time. Yeah. Was there any big kind of triggers there that might have brought this on for you, did you think? I I try not to look back and um, lend my mind to this too much because my mind wants to search for the cause and the reason. Yeah. But if I had to, um, there were two things in play at that point in my life. Um, the first was I had just spent my year 12 year, my final year of school, trying to duck the school, be the captain of the rowing team, um, be captain of various other things at school. And, and I had been getting up at four o'clock every morning either to train or to study. Um, and I had really, really pushed myself very hard for that whole school year. Um, and I was mentally and physically pretty fatigued at the end of that um and then within three months or four months I was diagnosed the other thing that was happening is I got a job in a bakery when I turned 16 and um I started eating a lot more bread as did my family and when I went to the world diabetes congress two years ago and a researcher got up and started talking about high exposure to gluten and gut permeability and gluten as a pathogen in the bloodstream triggering inflammation and an autoimmune response I put a few pieces together and thought yeah. hmm, that could have been that could have been all that bread yeah basically Beck when you were in your last year of school you you had the opposite life of me because I couldn't care less and you were like <laughs> trying to do your best so we were polar opposite in that respect um I was too busy trying to be cool, which I wasn't. Well, I got diabetes <laughs> and you didn't, so <laughs> I don't know what that says. Yeah, but I had to, I had to join the army because I had no other options. But anyway, <laughs> there you go. So you left, uh, you left school, you got uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. What was the mindset you had uh, leaving school and sort of taking on this new challenge? Like, what, what was your mindset? Were you like, were you kind of feeling, oh, I'm doomed, my life's over? Or were you like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this, I'm going to work with this? My mindset was I need to find out everything I can about this. I need to read as much as I can. I need to log my own data and I need to understand my own body um, because I felt when I was diagnosed, the education I was given and indeed the information that was out at the time was a very one-size-fits-all um, I guess, approach to managing the disease. And yeah. I knew pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work for me. And I, I, I see now, nearly 20 years later, we have um, this real individualised approach to care and personalised medicine conversations. And um, that was where I was thinking when I was 17, 18. This, I need to individualise this. And in order to do that, I need to understand it deeply. Yeah, so it was really about the acquisition of knowledge, how you can manage it. And yeah. how you can control this going forward. Exactly. And I think, I don't know where I got the courage <clears throat> for it from. Um, maybe just because you don't know what consequences look like when you're 17 or 18. Um, but I was I was happy to be an, a science experiment and to test things. Um, and I think that some of the work that we do now is, is around building that confidence to test diabetes management strategies and fail safely 
learn and then succeed. And so we really try with experiential education to help the kids at the family centre and and now the young adults and adults to to have the confidence to be able to do that because otherwise we can stay stuck, very stuck in a particular approach to managing that may not be working but fear holds us back. So that came sort of fairly intuitively to me, which I'm pretty grateful for because I was able to test insulin and food strategies and, um, and learn from them. So you went, when you went to uni, you did an undergraduate degree in law and something else, or was just law? History. Just law and history. Ooh, I've got some history questions here. <laughs> oh, Look at all those books there behind you. I've got a quiz you and all those history books sitting <laughs> behind me. Yeah. Um, why, why didn't you go and study science if, if this was kind of... Because you seem very passionate about science now, speaking to you on human performance and doing these things. Why, why back then did you go and study law and not, not science? You, you strike me as more of a scientist than a... Than a lawyer, and that's why I didn't last as a lawyer <laughs> for those two grand weeks <laughs> that I worked in a law office for. Um, so it's not like suits. It's not. It's not like people running around, you know, closing definitely deals. Definitely not like suits. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but um, I I'm not really sure. I think at that point uh, I was on a particular pathway, and um, while I was over there wrangling and getting my head around managing diabetes, um, it was all going to be way too much to change tack in terms of my study at uh, my study at that point. So I kept on with what I was doing um, and came to the public and population health much space much later. So yeah. when I was sort of 26, 27, I did a master's degree in that and upskilled in that space because that's where my passion lay. So you did kind of switch over to the to the science-y type subjects afterwards, yeah. I sure yeah. did. And well, that first year of that master's course when I was, I remember sitting down and thinking, <laughs> right, I'm doing a unit in epidemiology and I need to look up that word in the dictionary. <laughs> yeah. As the only non-clinician on that course, that was very challenging, but it was also awesome. Yeah. Um, I got up every day excited to learn what I was going to learn next. Epidemiology and like sort of global health population stuff is really, it's really interesting. So I, I, interesting. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's one of those subjects that you could just keep, you know, sort of studying and reading about forever. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what made you do history? You don't strike me as a history buff, that's why. I don't strike you as a history buff. I no. loved it. It's, oh, it's what kept me sane through my law degree. Um, really? <laughs> oh, that, that was that was the reason why I went to uni for the first three years. I, I loved it. I loved it at school. Um, I read history in my spare time. It was, yeah, it really, it kept me alive. It was great. So what's your favourite, like, uh, histori- his, historical, historian, historical period then? What do you like, what would you read about the most? Oh, I, I think... Pretty, the medieval period was yeah, just fascinates me. So that's what I read and watch and get stuck into. The medieval period. My, that's my wife's uh, least favourite. She's like, those people were filthy. They were walking around in shit. <laughs> Their hair wouldn't be done like that. That lady's eyes are perfectly done. This is crap. <laughs> like, so that's her. She's like, imagine the smell of those people. Look at the toilet. She's always like, she's always talking about smell and hygiene and medieval. But that's your favourite part. Oh, yes. And I think I get that social history side of things. <laughs> Things is was probably pretty unpleasant, um, but I think that oh, all of the the cut and thrust of politics and um, kings and that chess game that it seemed to play out um, across that period is just fascinating. Do you know what fascinates me about medieval history coming from you know Western Europe is how much that has affected our culture today. Like the whole, like, is that, is, and I'm not going to bang on about politics in Ireland, people. So relax, this will be 20 seconds. But like, how like that has sort of influenced you know 
land and nations today in, mm. in Ireland and the UK. It's fascinating over 800 years how you can see that trajectory of how things change and what went on. I find that fascinating for how it's affected today. Absolutely. It's really, it's really interesting. And, and coming from uh, Western Australia, um, where we have a very rich and very ancient uh, Aboriginal culture, but with this very short overlay of Western culture, um, going to somewhere like Europe for me and feeling... Um, getting dialed into the, that history and the stories, it's it's a really different experience. It's really interesting. We um, we come from. I've got a sense of the ancient in Western yeah, Australia yeah. and the very new, and not a lot in between. But you can get that when you go to Europe. Yeah. Mm. How or has it has the study of law and history benefited your work today in the type one diabetes field? Mm. Um, I think the the ability to see all sides of an argument is critical. Um, and I think it is a key skill working in the health space because it's very easy to become to, to hold a position in the health space and a lot of people do that. They say this is, this is how um, I'm going to live my life, this is my decisions or as clinicians certainly we do see a bit of that. Um, and... I feel that coming from a humanities background where we are taught to see a position, unpick it, start again, look at it from a different angle, mm. I, I feel that that's been the training that has been most useful for me in, I guess, accepting new, potentially controversial, interesting health ideas and, and bringing them into my work and my world. Yeah, because the diet, we've spoken about this the last few weeks Oh, and probably by, we should have spoken about this at the start. Myself and Beck have a disclosure here that we actually swim in the same group. We're part of a group that's training for the Rottenest Swim, which is approximately a 20 kilometer swim from here in Perth, Western Australia, to an island called Rottenest. I think it's 19.7 something, about 20 k's roughly. And this, this is where I met Beck. Uh, I'm down on one of the slow lanes where I can barely move my arms, and Beck is up in one of the speedy lanes where she's flying along. So this is where I met Beck, and this is why this is partly some of our kind of off-air conversations have led to today's podcast. So that's why I wanted to talk to Beck. Should have said that at the start, really, but anyway, there we go. <laughs> I assume prior knowledge. So you've kind of changed your diet back with this type 1 diabetes around sort of daily performance and athletic performance. Uh, can you describe the kind of diet you're on at the moment and that's kind of related to performance? And when we say diet, I don't want to, like, it's not diet to lose weight, and particularly on this time of year, people are like, oh, here's a new diet I can lose, used to lose weight. Yours is more like a way of, let's say, a way of eating mm. to live, yeah? Well, yeah. yeah, so I... I use a ketogenic approach, um, which means I am aiming for less than 30 grams of carbohydrate a day. Um, and I fill up the rest of my diet and access energy through, um, protein and fats. So my thinking there has been, um, around use adapting my body to use fat as the primary fuel source instead of glucose. Um, and in, in doing that, 
I've, it's sort of the holy grail for someone with type 1 diabetes because I can not only exercise relentlessly with an almost endless supply of fuel, um, but in not being dependent on constant glucose inputs, um, I am not therefore managing very complex insulin calculations whilst exercising. It keeps me safer. And um, I, I've found that has been an approach that has really been able to fuel some, some big endurance challenges and with, with great success. So is the ketogenic diet recommended for type 1 diabetics? Or is, there, or is there even a diet that's recommended for type 1 diabetics? Um, the advice that I got when I was diagnosed was eat according to the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. Now, that was a pyramid at that point. It's now a plate. It's the same concept. Um, eight to 12 serves of starchy grains um, and fruits and vegetables along the bottom. Um, and then you, as you go up, you have fewer serves of protein. And then fat is the very pointy end of the pyramid where you're supposed to eat a lot less. And essentially, I've flipped it. Um, so I found when I was advised to eat according to the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating with all of those, that constant input of carbohydrate, I dutifully ate according to the guideline. I had cereal and toast for breakfast. I had sandwiches and fruit for lunch. I might have had a bowl of pasta um, for dinner. And every time I ate, um, that carbohydrate turned into glucose and these tsunamis of glucose charged into my system. My blood sugar, no matter what I did with insulin manipulation, surged high and then crashed low and my blood sugar was so unstable and so volatile I felt like I couldn't go to sleep safely I couldn't go for a run without having a massive mm. hypoglycemic event and it was it was just a situation that was untenable so uh, I guess it's been me now arriving at the ketogenic the pointy end of that that point has been really an 18-year journey um, where I started pulling carbohydrates out of my diet within eight months of diagnosis because I just said, I can't live like this. This I was stacking on weight and I was so deeply unhappy. I thought, I've got to change the input here because this is the thing that's making my, my sugar levels so unstable. So how did you find a ketogenic diet? Let, can we go back a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah, further? Yeah, yeah. So, so eight months after diagnosis, um, when I, I had just had enough um, and I was depressed, I was overweight, I wasn't able to exercise, um, I, I, I did. I got to this point where I thought I've got to look around for a solution here and I found a book called Dr. Bernstein's Diabetes Solution online um, and I ordered it and it took about six weeks to come from the US and it changed my life almost overnight. Dr. Bernstein's a really interesting cat. He's an endocrinologist. Um, he was an engineer. He actually invented the blood glucose monitoring machine. He has type mm. 1 diabetes himself. And um, he started the conversation in the diabetes space around reducing carbohydrates in, in order to manage diabetes more effectively. Um, and I took the, those high-level principles from his book. It's, it's a very complex read, but it's definitely worth a read um, if you live with type 1 diabetes, um, and pulled those concepts and started pulling the carbohydrates out of my diet and replacing them with, with other macronutrients. And within a couple of weeks, my blood sugar had stabilized. I felt confident um, to, to sleep through the night without having to get up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. to test myself or fix a hypoglycemic event. Um, and that concept has stayed with me and has been honed over um, the last 17 or 18 years. So I came to ketogenic a little bit later in 2012, having eaten a relatively low carbohydrate diet up until that point. Um, 
a book by Stephen Finney and Jeff Volick came across my my desk um, called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance. They've also written um, a sister book called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living. And they were sensational reads, nothing to do with diabetes, but certainly fitted with my food paradigm. Um, And they talked about how athletes, by reducing carbohydrates even further than than what I was eating at the time, probably I cut it again in half, um, can adapt their bodies to utilize fat as the primary fuel source. And if we think about it, we've got 2,000 calories of stored glucose or glycogen in our muscles. And once that's gone, that's when you hit the wall and athletes will feel that. Um, And that's when we start, you know, needing gels and or carbohydrate input to fuel further performance. Whereas we've got more than 40,000 calories of stored fat in our bodies. And if we can train our bodies to access that as a primary fuel source, you have, I mean, we could swim to Madagascar, Ian. (laughs) Moving on. <laughs> I can't compare. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Every day is a PB for me. And you want to go out to Madagascar? How far is Madagascar from here? No, I don't know. It's about seven hours on a plane. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a little bit by, I suppose, trial and error, removing some stuff. Um, and then you kind of, you kind of just, it sounds like you just kind of constantly kept refining it, went to this low carb got to the ketogen, I presume along the way you were feeling better and better and that's why you kept kind of chasing the next incremental improvement mm. and that's what got you to the ketogenic diet. I think the, the real the real light bulb moment for me was when I signed up for, uh, I think it was about a 12-hour mountain bike race and uh, it was a dust till dawn and I had adapted across to keto for a number of months at that point and I was able to race around that course with a huge smile on my face without needing to refuel, apart from some low-sugar rehydration salts, everybody else was smashing gels and chocolate and peanut butter sandwiches, and I didn't need any fuel. And I thought, this is amazing. This, this, this can take me so far. My blood sugar was stable, and I had energy to burn. And that was really the key moment for me where I thought, this is the way forward. Mm, that's quite a shift. So you don't, you, you don't become so dependent on food as well, and you're just you kind of... It sounds like you're kind of liberated from the whole kind of tied to food for energy for performance. You don't have to be like, you know, on this timeline of eating every so often. You can just, you know, like you said, 12 hours of just cycling and movement and and feeling good is the main thing. So that's quite interesting. And the two places where that's really served me and it played out in the 2017 Rottnest Solo where after 10Ks I got terribly seasick and was sick every 20 or 30 minutes for the remaining 10 k's as um, in vomiting as in vomiting so i was unable to take on any nutrition um, and very little hydration and if i had have been a glucose dependent athlete at that point that would have been my swim gone it would have been over Um, because if i had been trying to input glucose to match an insulin load yeah um, but i was able to to divert well utilize a different fuel source and swim pretty much the whole swim with virtually no fuel input so or no nutrition um and that was again a big light bulb moment wow you know look what look what i'm able to do i felt like i I had good energy levels the whole way through the swim it was pretty unpleasant but Mm. um but i got through it um and the other key place where i think it's played out where it's been important to me picking up on your point of freedom from food yes in a performance context it's it's really nice to not be tied to well what are my nutrition stops and how are we going to make all this work and feel free of that but also in life more generally i don't get 
the hunger angries. Um, I don't hang out for food. Um, I'm, I'm able to, to fast if I want to or miss a meal or miss a number of meals. For example, I never eat on planes. That's sort of my policy. Um, and not feel like I'm hanging out for food all the time. And again, that's really served me, I think, because an a, a unhealthy relationship with food is something that a lot of people with type 1 diabetes live with. Yeah. When you are forced to see food as numbers and you can't look at a plate and look at it for the deliciousness or joy of it, you look at it and you break it down into carbs, fat and protein and the impact on your blood sugar, it really rips the joy out of eating sometimes. Um, and I feel like I'm not beholden to that thinking style anymore. So some people might be listening to this going, that's all well and good about food, but what about alcohol and drugs? What are we allowed to take? What are we not allowed to take as a type 1 diabetic? Um, Can you have caffeine? Can you have a glass of wine? Can you smoke a joint? Can you take Uh, a tablet? Um, I'll speak to caffeine first because that's my drug of choice. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I, I drink a lot of coffee, but I have to take coffee into account um, because the caffeine causes um, a, a cortisol and adrenaline release. Oh, and yeah. That, <laughs> which is the point. Um, and that, what that does is signal my liver and any, everybody's liver to, to dump a bit of glucose into the system. So that adrenaline is that fight or flight response and adrenaline um, is, is really around signaling the body to prepare the body for um, some sort of action. Now, your liver has a huge amount of stored glycogen, which, which flips into glucose um, when it's put into the bloodstream. Um, uh, hundreds of grams is sitting there and um, it can kick out glucose at any point. So if I drink coffee, I need to take insulin in order to account for it. Um, so I generally drink it black so there's no carbs coming along with it or with a little splash of cream, um, but I still need to keep the caffeine in play when I'm dosing my insulin. Yeah. Um, alcohol um, on a ketogenic diet, um, look, there's a big conversation about whether it kicks you in or out of ketosis um, and that's that's one conversation. But in terms of the carbohydrate load, uh, dry wines, there's some very low carbohydrate beers around at this point, um, which is which is nice. It's so much easier to eat low carb in 2019 than it was in 20, yeah, yeah. 2002 when I started doing it. Um, and so I'll stick to those sorts of things. Or spirits with the with a diet mixer. Yeah. Yeah. But I would presume with all the activity, you wouldn't be a big drinker or... Not, more like caffeine sort of to get you up and going during the day. Yeah, yeah. caffeine certainly, a glass of wine here and there, but yeah. um, nothing much more exciting than that. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you miss on a ketogenic diet that you maybe used to have years ago, like some sort of meal or do you feel like you're missing out on something? Is there any you, could, you would want to change or change? Honestly, no. Um, there was a point back in the day when I really, when I started doing it where I think maybe you know, bread and, you know, a slice of toast in the morning, probably for convenience as yeah, well as yeah. something to put your Vegemite on um, and having to, I guess, get creative in the kitchen and have to think about different ways to do things. That that was, that took a bit of learning, but now that I'm across it, I can let the bread basket go by in a restaurant. I can have be it morning teas that are full of cakes and goodies and all that sort of stuff. And I can genuinely say I'm not interested it, it really doesn't light up all those parts of your, my mm. brain where you think, oh, yep, sugar hit, sugar craving. It's just not there. And that comes back to that freedom from food yeah, yeah. point, which I think is something that I enjoy so much. You know what? I used to be a bit like that with alcohol. Um, 
like any good young Irish guy in the army when I was younger, I drank my fair share and then playing rugby and all that. But as I got older, um, I couldn't really stomach alcohol. And it wasn't that, you know, I enjoyed going out and, you know, getting a few beers and, you know, having a laugh. But it was days afterwards that I would feel like crap because my liver doesn't produce enough ALT and enzyme to deal with, like, basically the alcohol. So for, for weeks after, I'd nearly be feeling lethargic, grey, nearly, like, slightly depressed. Mm. And so then I took a break from alcohol back in 2012 for six months. Felt absolutely brilliant. Was in Vancouver for work and caught up my brother and had, like, six bottles of beer or stubbies, as we would say here in Australia, over about eight hours. Got up next morning and felt like shit and was like, oh, that's it, I'm done. And that was six years ago and haven't drank since. And the first year was a bit hard, kind of, you know, socially for work or going out or something. And then... But after a while, I was like, you know what? I know how good I feel now, mm-hmm. where I just could not be bothered. You know, I just could not be bothered. And every now and then, I might have an alcohol-free beer if I really want that taste of a, of a cold, refreshing beer. But I just could not be bothered with it because of the same thing. I know how bad it would make me feel for days afterwards. And it was just, it's not worth it for, you know, 10 minutes of mouth pleasure to have, like, a week of feeling like crap. So I fully know what you mean. Over time, it actually gets easier. Yeah. As opposed to getting more difficult. Yeah. And I think that that sense of consequence is an important one to keep your motivation levels high. I I will never forget what it feels like to be on a blood glucose roller coaster. Even even now without carbohydrate, you know, I'm still dosing insulin. I'm I'm a human, so I still calculate things and make mistakes. And um, every now and then if I have a, a low blood glucose event in the night, for example, I feel like I've been hit by a bus all day the next day. And I wouldn't want to do that to myself with my eating choices mm. because that's one piece that I've got total control over. And so the idea that I've got a choice and there's a consequence um, attached to it helps me stay motivated to say, no, thanks, send that bread basket on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, like, I had a couple of challenges after I gave up on the, on the same side as well where my biggest two challenges in the last six years was going to Ireland twice and not drinking. That would they were like, a challenge. They were like epic ones where my wife was going, I'm really fearful, like you're going to hang out with your dad and my dad is just an animal for drinking. So, and she was like, it's going to happen. I was like, it's not. And then when I came back and didn't, I think that was like a major milestone. That was like, yeah, it was like getting tempted by the devil and just, yeah, not doing it. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Is there a way to, can you, can you take anything to replace that enzyme temporarily? I, that might be a silly question, but I know that, you know, lactose intolerant people, they can take certain enzymes in order to go and eat dairy. Is that a thing? Um, not that, not that I know of, but, um, Basically, like avoiding alcohol would be would be good for it because mm. um, I produce too much of the enzyme, so oh, it's I actually see. It's, it's too so much. Too much. Enough. Yeah, um, I said enough. Maybe maybe I said that. What I meant was it's not good enough at breaking it down. Um, the alcohol would be too high, um, but basically, you know, um, alcohol and fatty lots of fatty foods will be can trigger it or make it worse. But also overtraining as well. Mm. Like and at the time, you know, I was training for 100k races and all that sort of stuff and, and still do crazy exercise so those things do elevate um it's hereditary so you can get it from alcohol abuse mm. um so some really bad alcoholics have it so straight away they look at like alcohol consumption but the fact that i went off alcohol for years and still had a high it was like it's definitely been from you know just probably hereditary so yep. mm. um yeah, I don't know if the alcohol abuse from my youth was any different than anybody else when they're like in their early 20s, you know, so. 
So yeah, um, so yeah, for me it was just about performance as well. So similar to yourself, like just you know changing some things to to improve performance. Mm. So you you made these changes to uh, your diet. Uh, you went low carb. You constantly refined it. Then you start doing some of these um, endurance events. Why did you start doing those? I just wanted the challenge. Um, I, I think that there was something. I, I, I have always been sporty, um, always been active, and I was just getting bored of just going to the gym and doing the same thing all the time. I needed something different to do. Were you, were you worried, or was any of your families or family or friends worried that like this will be too much with your oh, con- condition? Inverted commas. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you do it, anything like that with type 1 diabetes, people say, you know, we, they want to wrap you up in cotton wool and say, oh, but what about your, your medical condition and are you going to be okay? And, and yes, you, I think that – and that can be – that's one of the major barriers to physical activity in the type 1 diabetes community. We have um, a more overweight and more obese and less physically active subset of the population in type 1 diabetes than, than we do in the general population because um, there is this – reticence around saying yes you can exercise um here's how to do it and there's a real lack of information out there Mm -hmm. in the community about how to manage type 1 diabetes through exercise we only had a consensus statement released about diabetes and exercise type 1 diabetes and exercise last year so really it was a big black hole of um with with very little information out there that it was up to people to have the build up the knowledge and and the confidence in order to do it on their own up until very quite recently so that was a real challenge do you think like just even broadly that whether it be type 1 diabetes or not that a lot of humans i don't know how to to phrase this but do you think we just we don't reach our potential like we don't we don't. We're not able to maximize our performance. We we kind of, I suppose, don't achieve achieve greatness like that we could do in terms of like swimming twenty k's or running a hundred k's or cycling five hundred k's or doing these crazy events. Do you think that we're too probably conservative as humans these days? Possibly. I'm very lucky because I've got a group of friends who do awesome crazy stuff and so um they're quite the opposite one of my friends neil mcclagan has type 1 diabetes celiac disease hashimoto's and he rode his bike unsupported across australia in 20 days last year um i've got another 20 days 20 days unsupported um again on ketogenic diet um another mate also on keto kyle masterman did the full length of the mundabidi trail on his mountain bike 1071 kilometers in 10 days um last year so um yes um perhaps there's there's a um the population isn't pushing itself as hard as it could I, i'm not really sure i can comment on that because i'm very lucky to be surrounded by nutters who who are yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah that's their thing i think sometimes you get attracted to nutters as well uh, into different groups like i started swimming in march take a break from running that's all it was i had no intentions like i was my goal was like if i can do 1.5 to 2 k's in the pool I'll be really happy and I'll just do that. That'll be like a, I'll get, I'll get good at that. And my goal was to be able to do two Ks, get out of the pool and not be dizzy. 
because I used to do, I used to be able to get up to two k's, but I get out of pool and I couldn't walk straight to the change rooms. And and what did you swim on Saturday? Uh, eight point three k's. Eight point three. Yeah, yeah, I know it's fucking uh, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You're smashing yeah. it. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm so impressed. But that's the problem you see is because I just like even my wife goes to me, take a break from running, huh? Do a bit of swimming, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and now I'll be doing the duo for Port the Pub, um, you know, so we'll hit about ten k's. So it's 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 crazy, yeah. But that's the problem. To your point, is that I think sometimes our type of personalities, you just start attracting yourself to other nutters and you want to get into doing these crazy things. And it's nearly like the further it is away from me, the more I want to try and do it, you know? It's it's uh, it's so quite addictive. Can I tell you what I've been thinking about the last 48 hours? I spent my whole swim this morning <laughs> thinking about it. Could I swim around Rotnest? I, I think it's about 33 kilometres. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I think it's a pretty cool goal. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it pretty hard. Ooh, because I had another one, which was, could I do this within the space of six months? Could I swim to Rotnest and then do a 100K, mount, uh, do a 100K mountain ultra all in the space of six months? Wow, that's a lot of training. Yeah. I'm sure you could. Because yeah. it's, it's both ends of the body, so it's not like you're... Yeah, yeah uh, but they're polar opposite type of training. But I like your swim around Rotnest. I think that'd be great. I'd, I'd want to couple of shark shields i have to say <laughs> but um there's and there's some pretty hectic swell and currents out on the west end but look i think i think that'd be a pretty cool thing to do so about 30 k's you've seen you see have you see you've obviously heard of that guy ross was a hedgley or edgley swam around the uk oh what did it take him four months yeah doing six hours on six hours off and he lost pieces of his tongue i read that yeah. bit it just yeah. sounds horrific imagine swimming in the north sea for hours on end. I wouldn't even get to a swimming pool in Ireland. Never mind getting to the ocean. Is there a swimming pool in Ireland? Just, I think there's one or two, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we call them ponds. I, 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 could, I could imagine it, yeah. But swimming on Rotness, that's a good one. I don't know. Just, I've just been thinking about it. Let's make that event happen, people. There's mm. someone, some crazy race director out there that might want to have, have that happen. That's a good one, yeah. Mm. Uh, the other thing we could, do, we could do as well is we could create a big event over like a... Have you, there's an event in, in America called the Leadville 100. It's a 100-mile run. However, and it's at altitude, there's an event then that kind of ties all the events together, which is called Lead Man and Lead Woman. So over the course of so many months, you have to run the Leadville 50-miler, I think. I could be getting this wrong. But anyway, the Leadville 50-miler, you have to run that, finish under a certain time. I think you have to cycle in the Leadville 50-miler, which is a mountain bike race. Mm. Then you come back, I think, three months later, on a Saturday, you cycle 100 miles at altitude at Leadville. The next morning, you get up and you run the 10K in town. Then the following Saturday, you run 100 miles at altitude. Oh and then God. so the best time out of that becomes lead man or lead woman. Now, so I was thinking something like that in Western Australia where maybe over the course of a few months, you do like a mountain bike ride, you do the rottenness swim included into a... There's a couple of ultramarathons here in Western Australia or the Mundabidi type thing or the Biblum track. You take a section of that. To make it like the ultimate adventure race. Yeah. Have you seen that race called the, I think it's called the Arch to Arc in Europe? It's from a a bridge in the UK, the Arch, whatever it's called. Um, And it's a a good 100k plus run. Swim the channel and then ride to the Arc de Triomphe. So it's... Mm -hmm. Huge triathlon. I think a lot of people do it in teams, but um, over the a course of number of days. But some people do it solo. Um, mad. 
See, when I hear events like this, even though they're completely on my reach at the moment, I get like butterflies in my stomach and I start thinking about all the ways you could do that and train for it, all the crazy, crazy things you could do. I think that'd be a lot of fun. God. I think our definition of fun might need a little bit of a review as well. It gets quite addictive though, doesn't it? Like doing crazy events. The sense of achievement when you get there. That's, that's yeah, that's, that's more to the point. That's addictive. It's huge. And the other yeah. thing is I've, I've, I'm really enjoying this Rotto campaign. Um, I think last time around there was a lot of anxiety around how, what, how's my diabetes going to look in the water and I sort of was off the edge of all of the research that I could read about marathon swimming, ketogenic yeah, yeah. and type 1 um, and was the anxiety around testing that strategy in on race day was pretty huge but this time around i know i know i can do it and um i i'm loving it the 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 swim squad's great crack it's the ocean swims on the weekends it's just it's so much fun i'm actually surprised right to be honest with you because i thought like swimming was a bunch of posh assholes right when i first got into it i thought it's middle upper middle class lower upper class posh people right that were going to be really closed in i really did and maybe there's a few of you out there i don't know (laughs) but i've had nothing but fun like, it's been brilliant. It's been really down to our people. It's been great fun in the pool. And it's hard to get, like, in a jovial mood at 20 past five on a Saturday morning. And there's people laughing, joking. Like, yeah. it's really good. And like you say as well, in between those sessions, there's people make a, meeting up at the, at the beach to go swimming. And there's no clicks being formed. You know, like in most groups, because we've got nearly 60-odd swimmers, and in most groups there's, like, oh, yeah, well, we'll you know, like, uh, Beck and John will just go down here because they're the fast swimmers or, you know... Pete and Ian will go up here because they're the slowest swimmers. No, it's like, everybody come along. We'll wait for you. Like, we'll all swim as a group. We might swim ahead, but we'll stop and wait for you. We'll all check. Everybody's welcome. Yeah. No one is excluded. There's no age, sex, preference. There's no discrimination whatsoever. It's such a good, inclusive group, and it's got such a good culture. It's, it really is a joy to be part of it. It's such a good atmosphere to train in, and I, I agree with you. It's, it's really good fun this year, and I'm actually... Already before it's finished, I know there's like five or six weeks left. I'm like, oh, shit, I wish I would just keep going. Well, you have to keep doing the, the Monday 5.30. <laughs> That's pretty brutal all the way through winter. Yeah, you um, see, I'm not a fan of that in the winter. Maybe if you can keep, keep the summer going all year. <laughs> <laughs> it is easier to get up when it's bright. Well, it almost is in Perth. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it is. I think that social element to the sport is really important and making the time after training to sit down and have a coffee and, and have a bit of a yarn about it, was, it's important. And I, I really value that aspect of, of the training. I think the mountain bike community is really similar. It's one, one of the reason why I got out of triathlon is because I, I didn't feel that there was um, th- there was a huge amount of competitiveness. It was a little bit clicky in the group that I was in and I just found it all a bit too hard work. Mountain biking, totally different. I can go biking with people that are 10 times faster than me. It's the same thing. I'll just wait for you at this point and off we go again and I'll beat them up the hills and they'll beat me down the hills mm. and happy days. And then everybody goes and has a coffee or a beer afterwards and it's really inclusive. It's really good. People of all different shapes and sizes. That's the thing that really strikes me about swimmers is it's there's not this set swimming physique or yeah, yeah. Um, or body type or anything like that. Yeah, we yeah. have people of all different shapes and sizes in our squad and they're, they're amazing. We have, you know, ninja level people who you wouldn't look at necessarily and think you're going to be an incredible athlete and then they just smoke you in the pool. Yeah, it's crazy. It just shows <laughs> awesome. you how, how much like that sport is technique, technique. Te- technique dependent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm not surprised you go to a triathlon because like people like me and you are way too fat for triathlon. <laughs> like, let's hey, be honest. It. Let's be, let's be honest. We're just way too fat. Like, 
I, I tried to get into triathlons in 2008, 9 and 10 and the same thing as well I left because of that culture I just could not it was aggressive I nearly had fights on the run I mm-hmm. had guys screaming at me on the bike I was mm-hmm. like I have your number and I'd catch up with them on the run and be like what are you saying now? Mm-hmm. You know and there was that whole and even one guy said to me at a triathlon here in the city one day are you going to do the full like distance? And I was like yeah you're a bit heavy <gasps> I was 77 kilos and 5 foot 10 I'm not oh, absolutely wow. shredded, like ripped with an air pack, but I'm not like, it's not like I'm morbidly obese. He's like, you're a bit heavy. And I was like, really? Dickhead? Like, <laughs> like, so I think there's a lot of body image issues in triathlon that I've seen oh. and a lot of um, segregation. Now, look, there could be great triathlete people out there and we might, I might just had a bad experience, but I've never, I've never had a good triathlon experience, unfortunately, over nearly two and a half years trying them. And that's what led me to go to trail running. Mm. That was oh, one of the right, big catalysts okay. for me to go because I was going to try and, and get really good at triathlon and, you know, for that challenge. And then I went, nah, I'll just, I'll go to trail running. And I just fell in love with trail running. Yeah. And the same thing with swimming as well. Taking a break and trying swimming, like particularly the ocean stuff is, is really like boosted my confidence over the, over the Christmas swimming with you guys, like in the open water. It's boosted my confidence. Um, because growing up in Ireland, living in the middle of Ireland, not being able to really swim <laughs> and definitely not being able to swim in the ocean, mm. to be able to get in like a Mullaloo a few weeks ago and, and compete in a 5k ocean swim. And I came out in an hour and 47, which is not a great time in the last 20% probably of people. But for me, it was like I won the Olympics. I came up that beach, like I was walking like Aquaman with my chest out. I felt so <laughs> good. You know, I, I was like, I cannot believe I just swam 5k's in the ocean. Like it's, and I think that's the good thing about these type of events, like you were saying, the sense of achievement afterwards, but you start, you start applying those things to the rest of your life. Wow, I did that, I can do this. I yeah. did that, I can do this. And it just starts giving you, not an arrogance, but a confidence about, I know the process to go from zero to hero nearly, and yeah. I can apply that then to all different aspects. Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm also drawn to sports that take me into nature. Um, I don't want to, I hate road cycling. I'll ride my bike to get from A to B on the road, but I'd much rather be on a trail out in the bush. Um, I'll, I'll swim in a pool again to get the K's into my, my shoulders, but I'd much rather swim in the ocean. Um, I'm, you know, scuba diving, sailing, the sports that I'm, I'm really into, are ones where I get a sense of I'm, I'm outside, I'm, I'm in the elements and I love the dynamism of that. You, you, the, the conditions shift, you're constantly reading your environment. It's not as structured as something like there is an open water swim element, certainly in a triathlon, but everything else happens on the road um and i i i like the problem solving element i think and the keeping yeah, my brain yeah. alive when i'm swimming in the ocean um it's i can go into you know the black line coma in the, in the pool yeah, yeah. but get me out in the ocean and there's creatures to see and there's conditions to deal with and You're i'm constantly trying adjusting. to sight myself yeah. and orient myself along the, the coastline that that's the the real draw for me yeah and I'm the same like that, and come from a trail run, the same thing as well. Like running, if you ask me, like I've said to people before, I feel worse after running a road marathon than I do after running 100Ks in the mountains. And people can't get that, but like, it's just completely, it's completely different. Yep. You, you mentioned uh, scuba diving. So you have that very famous viral clip of you with a seal. Is that you? Oh, that wasn't me. No, oh. no, I, I shared it because I had a similar experience that isn't on camera oh. um, down at Northcott. Um, oh, it's not on camera. Oh, no, no. I thought that was you. 
No, I and just I looked at that I, and thought, oh, this reminds me of... Oh, um, of I that. thought that was you and I showed it to my wife. My wife was like, is that that lady you're going to interview? And I went, yeah. And she goes, oh, that's so cool, that video. And I thought it was you. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I think it's actually so you misled dude. us. Oh, fake news. <laughs> but I did have an experience down at Northcott training a couple of years ago when a giant grey shape came screaming towards me at 100 miles an hour and I nearly had a heart attack. My life flashed before my eyes. I thought it's all over. And it was a beautiful seal and he <laughs> or she swam with me for 10 or 15 minutes really tummy tickles swam around me came right up close um and it was just wonderful i just i stopped swimming and i just had this beautiful frolic in the ocean with yeah, this yeah. gorgeous creature it was awesome oh it's crazy yeah we're starting to digress here which i love about this podcast but uh there might be some people out there today who are not type 1 diabetic and i know you're not a dietitian and I'm not asking you to give dietary advice, but if some people were going to switch over to a low-carb ketogenic diet and were thinking about it, what would be the potential benefits for them in terms of lifestyle, health? You know, because there might be people out there that might want to just do a park run 5Ks. Mm. What sort of benefits have you seen from the research that you've read? And again, it's not dietary advice, but what, what sort of benefits are people experiencing that you've seen? Um, I think the bear, uh, benefits are myriad. We've got um, not only that, you know, lack of, dependence on constantly having to input food so you've you've got a little bit more control about your experience and your relationship with food and that's been one of the key um, benefits for me in terms of energy levels um it's it's essentially like running on a diesel engine you can feel like you can just go forever with with a sustained very constant energy level it doesn't peak and dip um like being carb dependent may may do um so energy levels the relationship with food um i think mental clarity has been a really key thing for me i feel like i can concentrate for longer um when i know that i'm running um, my, my my brain's running on ketones i can test my blood for ketones to see whether or not i'm i've got a presence of ketone in my blood and most times when i do uh, test it then i do have ketones but that there's some research emerging around um, mental clarity and that feeling of that no no fuzz or fog yeah, yeah. Um, that people can feel, and and I think a really good day to day example of that is is a food coma that people describe. You know, you eat a yeah, big yeah. carb loaded meal and you feel sleepy and lethargic and a lack of energy and potentially pretty foggy in your brain. I I never experienced that. Um, so there is again that sense of that real benefit. At, you know, for example, at work where I can go all day and not have big energy um, troughs throughout the day where I'm, I don't feel I can concentrate. So they've been a few of the key benefits. The other one is weight maintenance. Um, for me, I think that eating to uh, eating essentially protein um, and fat to satiety, um, I eat a huge amount of vegetables. Um, I think that idea of um, I've got pretty much everything going in except for grains and sweet fruits. It's helped me feel really easy about managing my weight um, and that's been a key benefit. And I know a lot of people are looking into keto for weight loss and maintenance. Um, And I think also nutrient density. That's the other big key benefit. I mean, a day in my life looks like an extraordinary amount of non-starchy vegetables, so vegetables that grow above the ground, essentially, so not spuds or sweet potato or um, anything like that. So I eat a a big array of vegetables. I eat meat, fish, 
um, full fat dairy, nuts, berries. Um, and so it's a very colorful, very micronutrient rich diet. (laughs) And I feel that that also gives me energy to perform for obvious reasons. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, sort of around Christmas, we're doing some washing swimmers and, you know, we spoke about your diet. I think it was around boxing there or somewhere around there. But then afterwards, a friend of mine who's in Melbourne started a ketogenic diet on the 1st of January. Thought, I'm going to try this because a friend of hers or a colleague of hers had lost like, I don't know, 20 kilos doing kind of a keto paleo style diet last year. Mm-hmm. Not for performance, but he just basically ate like meat and offal and just lost a heap of weight, right? So she's been doing it now. Today is the 15th of January. She's been doing it 15 days. I spoke to her this morning. She's lost five kilos. Wow. Right? Last Tuesday, after speaking to you and speaking to this other lady as well, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to go ketogenic, but I'm going to do low carb. I'm going to get rid of all the crackers, all that sort of stuff. I'm going to put them in one cupboard. I'm going to have one cheat day a week where I can eat whatever I want. And I'm just going to go low carb all week. And even though I had that big swim on Saturday, I thought I'll do that. And uh, I'll just supplement with some mushed fruit on the weekend before that swim. And some made some breakfast muffins with egg and spinach and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. To eat in between and a couple of dates. And swam that. In the very, so five or six days doing a low carb thing, swam that race, felt fine. Was very hungry afterwards, obviously, after doing all that. Mm. But it's been a week now, Tuesday to Tuesday, and I've lost two kilos in a week. Yeah, wow. And I, you know, yeah. and I, I was like, like I said, I wasn't like really overweight, but also I don't feel hungry. Yeah. I'm having, and there's a, there's a lot of good low carb, high fat desserts you can have out there that are <laughs> really good. And I do not feel hungry. And the biggest thing is in the morning as well, waking up, I used to fast twice a week where I wouldn't eat till about 12 o'clock. Most days now, with the exception of probably after a big swim this in the last week, but I think only one, two days in the last seven I've had breakfast, other days I've happened. Because mm. I just don't feel, I do not feel hungry whatsoever. And I feel, it's not like I'm trying to deprive myself, but I feel actually pretty full. And that's the biggest thing this week. Um, I haven't felt hungry once. And that makes total sense because you're eating now a low insulin load diet. So you're, you're have, you've got lower demands on your insulin and insulin is a very powerful hormone that stimulates a whole lot of a cascade of other impact hormonal impacts in the body. So we're, we're talking about ghrelin and leptin yeah. and all of the hormones that play out in our hunger and satiety signaling. So if you're pulling back on foods that are going to cause a big insulin response, then you're also minimising those big swings that are telling you hungry, um, continue to eat more, and insulin is the main stimulant of, of that hormonal response. So that does make sense. And, and the, the weight loss picture keto is used in weight loss it's also i i haven't um i'm weight stable so i think it's about defining your goals in Mm. relation to a ketogenic diet saying right okay weight loss is what i'm shooting for um initially that first weight loss in a ketogenic diet is water weight often because when you've got glucose and glycogen packed muscles they take a lot of water molecules along with them so you will be stripping water and that's why salt replacement is really critical at the beginning of a ketogenic diet and to continue on with that um, because you will be dropping um the potassium and sodium levels out of your body as well with that water is that why i feel so dehydrated the last week i just constantly can't stop drinking water i constantly feel thirsty put a bit of salt in there aiming for sort of six grams 
plus a day. And I can't um, seem to, like, when I go to the bathroom, it's just constantly, like, dark yellow. It feels like I'm just never hydrating. Yeah, that'll be that'll be you yeah. switching across to um, a, a, fat, a fat adaptation phase and your body is dumping the water. And what about the bad breath? Is that a symptom as well? Because that's what I feel like the last week as well. My breath has been a bit, like, my not my, I don't know if my breath is bad, but I feel like my mouth tastes like shit. Oh, that's interesting. I don't experience that. No, no. Um, I... People do say that um, if you're ketotic, and it's one of the, the symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis, which is not ketosis, not it being in the state of using fat for fuel, mm. but a much um, more serious um, condition when the buildup of ketones in the blood can become very completely unregulated because there's no insulin on board. Um, one of the key, um, I guess, symptoms of that is a, a fruity acetone smell on the breath. Yeah. That's, that's how people describe it. Do you remember pear drops? Yeah, yeah. yeah I like it's, them. It's pear drop smell. That, that smell or nail polish remover. That's what people describe it as. Okay. So My wife um, can't smell it, but I feel like a taster. But that could be, maybe I just have bad breath. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on this side of the table, so no comment. <laughs> Luke. Okay, mm. all right. So yeah, so there's definitely some benefits and people can play around with it and try around with it. Especially this time of year, a lot of people are trying to lose weight, want to try something novel. This might be something that they could potentially play around with. Um, as, yeah. a, as a strategy. And I think that if they do, then it's worth committing to it for a, a four to eight week period because okay. if, you, if you're looking to really develop, go into ketosis and, and really manage this um, and get to the benefits that I'm talking about, um, you need to give your body time to, I guess, redirect those energy pathways so that yeah. it's not glucose dependent. You've, your metabolism becomes a lot more flexible and you can start properly adapting to using fat and it you will experience some lethargy some cravings potentially some headaches related to that hydration piece um in that time frame as as your body converts across and then it'll land and you'll pop out the other side and you'll start experiencing those real benefits yeah if you think about it, if your body's been addicted, which is essentially what it is, yeah. to carbohydrate and it, you've been putting it in four to five times a day for years upon years, there's, there's going to need to be a period of, of shift to make that happen. Mm. So, Beck, in about five, six weeks, you will be swimming to Rottnest in the solo, mm-hmm. nearly 20 kilometres. You're raising some funds. Or you're trying to raise some funds and they, our squad is trying to help you as well. Can you tell us a bit about the funds you're trying to raise and what that money will be used for? That's right. I'm very grateful to the eSwim squad for banding together to help raise some funds. And I'm also doing my own personal fundraising um, for the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre. So our centre um, was set up in 2015. We're, we're fairly new and it's a non-profit uh, psychosocial and clinical support service for people living with Type 1. We have 11,000 people living with type 1 in Western Australia and they need support and the people who love them need support as well because it's a very difficult and complex medical condition to live with um, and it really has profound impacts on families and we were set up to help um, support families. So we we run clinical services, diabetes education, dietetics, um, we do routine blood testing and screening and we also have a clinical psychology service. Um, so that real um, holistic wraparound 
around clinical support. And we also have this wonderful social service where we run four camps a year. We run over 30 social and community events a year, putting people together so that they can find others who um, have are walking a mile in their shoes. And the power mm. of peer support truly is transformative. Um, so we, we set up a lot of those events and we run those. I'm taking all the kids surfing next weekend, for example. Again, we're trying to get them in doing things that they would traditionally have a real fear around, particularly things like water sports. Um, so we get them out amongst it. And we also, um, we, we advocate for people with type 1 diabetes. We mentioned scuba diving a little earlier. Um, people with type 1 diabetes were, were not allowed to learn how to scuba dive in Australia until 2016, um, until the work we did at the family centre broke that barrier down mm. and changed the medical um, and gave them access to that particular sport. So just um, one of the examples of some of the advocacy yeah, yeah. that we've done. So we're... We're in it for the people in Western Australia with type 1 diabetes. I've got a wonderful team. Everyone's personally impact, impacted by type 1. Um, we're a little team. We're only 4.5 FTE um, and we're kicking big goals for the type 1 community. So that's what we're raising funds for to support the, that work. See, look how much more you're excited about that than you are about history. You weren't that excited about medieval history when we spoke about that half an hour ago. That's, uh, so that's I think brilliant. I might have been still waking up. But suffice it to say, I found my groove in my career. It's, um, it's wonderful to have such a sense of purpose. That's great. And I think it's awesome that you're doing these type of events to lead by example. You're not, not someone just sitting behind a desk, you know, wagging the finger going, this is what the research is. You are a living, breathing, walking, science, swimming experiment yourself, <laughs> which is great. And I think it's... I think it's awesome. People can look to that and, and follow that leadership and do these events and not use things like type 1 diabetes as a barrier or anything else. And it's I think not an excuse. It's not an excuse. For, I think it's, we had Brad Cooper on last week talk about mental toughness. A man in his 50s doing a PhD, running a business. He cycled across America in seven days. He ran a sub three hour marathon. And he said, don't use age as an excuse. And I think your message this week is about you don't have to use type 1 diabetes as an excuse as well. You can, you can get up and you, you've showed that, like you've demonstrated that you can get up and do these events like swimming with seals or cycling 12 hours or swimming to rottenness so it's a it's a credit to you and i think it's a it's a great example for for not just type 1 diabetics for but for people in general thank you so much that's um our motto at the family center is life without limits yeah and i i really want to to live that um it's really important to me um and yeah that's something that uh, something that i think i'm grateful for in a strange way for living with type 1 diabetes um is type one tough. I call it type one tough because there are days when people with diabetes get up and they might've had a terrible night medically. Um, and they still get up and they face up to life. They go to work, they go to school, they train, they travel, they engage with their families and their friends. They juggle all the balls that everybody else juggles, but they also manage all of the complexity and the, the, the lack of energy and the difficulty that comes along with, um, not having a great time with type one diabetes and they grind through anyway despite the discomfort mm. and when I see people who are facing up to life and not dialing out um, despite having had a rough time with type 1 diabetes I think we should celebrate that and I celebrate that myself um, and I think it's taught me a huge amount because when I was out there at the 18k mark stuck in that current vomiting on the, my first rottenness solo I could call deep on that tough and that toughness and it really served me at that point because I know what it feels like to be uncomfortable and grind through anyway yeah you got that sort of innate resilience mm. already yeah and that's, that's what type one teaches us yeah 
Great message. So, Beck, if people want to get a hold of you, they want to follow you, have you got any blogs, websites, social media presence that you want to give out? And we will put the links in the show notes, but if you want to just... Sure, have a look at our, our website. I'd love you to, type1familycentre.org.au. Um, I'll put the Swim Fundraiser up on the site. And please do explore the website and explore our work. Follow us on Facebook. Um, again, just search for Type 1 Family Centre. Um, my blog, um, not as active as it should be, but it's called Swimsulin. Um, and Swimsulin. I've detailed the whole campaign um, of swimming to Rottnest for the first time. And there's a lot of conversation on there about what I eat as well. That's great. Beck, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. For anybody listening, I know this wasn't a sleep podcast, but I really wanted to talk to Beck about this because we will in the future be talking about diabetes and sleep and we're going to be getting into some other stuff around uh, nutrition. So I'm hoping to get some other people on this year uh, to talk about sort of diet-related stuff as well. I will also be going to World Sleep in Vancouver in September and there's some, you know, fairly significant famous scientists in this area that I'm hoping to get on the podcast as well. So this is a little bit of a precursor, I think, to getting some of those people on um, on the podcast. But I did really want to provide a platform for Beck to share her personal story today. And please, people, put your hand in your pockets, grab that credit card and put in some money into the fundraiser, even if it's only $10. All donations are greatly, greatly received. They're all tax deductible. Uh, it's true everyday hero the pages on there they're in the show notes please go in there and uh, support beck in her endeavor to swim to rottnest solo and indeed the rest of the east swim squad there's a lot of people out there who are at different various stages in their life taking on the solo duo or team challenges for different reasons so everybody's got a personal story there um so please if you have the funds please um donate all right that's it for this week thank you very much beck uh, swim well and sleep well thank you what a great episode there with Beck today so once again thanks to Beck for joining us on Sleep for Performance Radio that's all for this week be sure to head over to sleepforperformance.com.au to check out our monthly blogs don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter as well which comes out at the uh, first week of each month uh, which is a wrap-up of all the news uh, that's been taking place for the previous month, podcasts, blogs, etc. If you'd like to get in contact with me, Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au. Until next time, sleep well and train well.